This is Tempest Tossed, Conversations on Migration and Mobility, and I'm Alex Alenikoff. There is a lot of trauma that goes unspoken with having had to live as an undocumented person that I am sure it's not just me. I'm sure there's thousands of people in this country who have had to live with that trauma. So the more I talk about it publicly, the more I help others understand their own hardships, fight alongside me, and speak up if they want to. It's great to be starting the second season of Tempest Tossed. Uh, There's been a blizzard of immigration actions from the Trump administration while we were away, and we'll be taking a look at a number of them over the course of the season. The administration continued its assault on asylum seekers, and they reached deals with Mexico and Honduras and El Salvador and Guatemala in an attempt to keep asylum seekers from reaching the southwest border. And the administration adopted new regulations that would deny asylum to anyone who travels through another country before coming to the U.S. Most recently, the administration announced that it plans to resettle only 18,000 refugees in the 12 months starting October 1st, a number far, far below the 110,000 scheduled by President Obama in his last year in office and the lowest number ever since the program began in 1980. Lawyers in lower courts remain active. Last week, three lower courts enjoined the new public charge rule from going into effect. This was a rule the administration proposed that would uh, keep out uh, immigrants likely uh, to need welfare or other public benefits if they entered the U.S. Even as the courts enjoined the rule, the administration announced another rule barring persons without health insurance from getting green cards. Next month, the Supreme Court will hear arguments on the president's decision to end the DACA program. So we thought it appropriate to start our season with someone who has experienced life as a dreamer and beyond. Catalina Cruz is a member of the New York State Assembly, the lower house in the New York legislature. Assemblywoman Cruz came to the U.S. from Colombia as a child with her mother. Their visas expired, but they stayed on. She lived in an undocumented status throughout most of her childhood and went to college. She eventually got a green card and citizenship and attended and graduated from law school. And she's been a lawyer and advocate for immigrants' rights and has held a number of positions in New York State and New York City government. She was elected to the New York State Assembly last year, and she represents a district in Queens, Catalina Cruz is the first dreamer elected to office in New York, and her campaign was featured in the recent book See Jane Win by Caitlin Moscatello, which chronicles the trials and triumphs of women in American politics. In office, Cruz has helped to enact landmark legislation that seeks to protect undocumented migrants in the state. So the Driver's License Access and Privacy Act will allow undocumented immigrants in New York to obtain driver's licenses for the first time, and it will take effect in two months. The New York DREAM Act, passed in January, will give undocumented students access to state financial aid and scholarships for higher education. We spoke to Assemblywoman Cruz in studios at the New School in New York City. Assemblywoman Cruz, thanks so much for being with us today. It's great to see you. 
your personal story is a, a lot of your political history, and I could, perhaps it's fair to say a, a source of your values as you've talked about it over time. So tell me a bit about that story. What stands out? What makes you who you are? I think it's the the fight and the grit and and, and the process of of getting here, of becoming someone who can focus on something beyond surviving every day. I um I came from Colombia when I was nine years old with my mom. When we were in Colombia, we were like working middle class. My mom was a nurse. She had a good government job. But it was in the middle of the drug wars in Colombia, in the middle of the height of the drug wars. Um, this is when, you know, for, for anyone who's seen Narcos, this is like the bad part in Narcos. Um, around the time when I was about three, four, maybe five years old, I saw someone getting murdered in front of my house. And my mom had to make the harsh decision this was no longer the place we could call home. We, uh, we, she began saving up, going through the process. And when I was nine years old, my mom moved us out of the country. We came to the United States. We came to Queens. And that's where the real hardship actually began for our family because it was just my mom and I, uh, blood relatives. And we came to a country where we didn't have papers. We didn't know the language. We didn't know the laws. We didn't know the protections or lack thereof that we had. We would become victim to over the years, and uh, we had to go through through a lot. So often, what made me who I am were those hardships that we had to endure. The fact that um, to make ends meet, my mom and I would often go pick cans and recycle them, or that my mom had to um, had to sell empanadas or they had to sell tamales or that she cleaned people's homes or that she often wouldn't come home um, because she had two, three jobs. And so it was seeing a lot of that, that when the time came for me to step up to the plate, um, as petrified and as scared as I was to run, it would never compare to what I had already gone through. So it made it that much easier to to kind of go through that wall or ceiling, I guess, you know, and, and, and kind of get it done. Is that in some ways the 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 story of immigration that we like to tell in the US about people come, they work hard and they make it? Is that the typical immigrant story from your perspective? It depends on whose typical immigrant story you're speaking of. If we're talking for the Republicans, it's the story that they would like to see. It's the good immigrant story, but not the story that sells them votes. For the rest of the more progressive folks in, in the country, if you will, it's the, it's the story of hardship and it's the story that has made the United States. I often remind people that it's not America because America is a continent. We are a country. It's the United States. It's what made us who we are, a nation of immigrants, the kind of country that recognizes that it is on the back of immigrants that we have built the constitution, that we have built the kind of economy that we have, that we have built the good and the bad. Um, and, and so for me, I see it more as um, the story of the people in my community, in my district, because right now, right now, as a matter of fact, because I just had someone in my office yesterday telling me a very similar story, a mom an undocumented mother with her teenage daughter facing eviction, which happened to my mom and I. And so it's the story that it still goes that still goes on every day in my district, in my community. 
Tell me more about your district. The It's often said that the area around Jackson Heights and some of the communities you represent are among the most diverse in the country with 150 languages being spoken. What What's it like to represent a district that diverse? It's beautiful. It's a reminder of the kind of country that my mom brought me to. Not necessarily the kind of country we are now. I think there are dark days when it often feels like the country hates the kind of community that I represent and the kind of community that we are. But it is the kind of community where you can go from one end of an avenue to the other end and basically go through several continents worth of food and several continents worth of beautiful people. Uh, We have tons of immigrant small businesses, including restaurants. Um, We have mothers who still collect cans, like my mom did. We have uh, folks who've made it, like I have. And we are the kind of community who every day gets up and goes to work and every day hopes that they can come back home to their family. You know, you mentioned that Republicans might like your story because it's one that you came, you worked hard, and you get ahead. So I can imagine also Republicans might not like the story because you came with papers, but you overstayed the visa and you became undocumented. And maybe they're not so happy with that. So how do you deal with that story? I've gotten both. I've gotten the folks who are, oh, you're the good immigrant. We need more people like you. And I've gotten the death threats and the story on Breibart uh, saying, using the I word um, that... Um, that I often like to remind people that no human being is illegal, that immigration is a civil and not a criminal law. So nobody has actually broken a criminal law for them to be called criminals. And so what I often do is not focus on that version. I focus on the version of people like my mother. I focus on the version of people like me, of young people uh, like the ones who helped me get elected that remind me that this is still a country that has hope, that we have not completely lost the soul of a nation. And I try to to think about the idea that um, I had another elected official tell me once, if you don't have haters, you're not doing your job correct. So that's how I like to think of it. You know, see, I, I can I can hear you say that, and I wonder it must be really tough though to have haters, particularly in these very tough times of vituperative discussions over immigration. So, how do you deal with the haters? What when you go home at night? How do you how do you handle that? Depends on how much hate there is. I have called the cops on some of them. I have filed reports. I have gotten them blocked uh, because when I have someone telling me, "I hope you get shot." That's a problem. I don't mind, and I don't mind discourse. You don't have to agree with me. You just have to do it in a respectful way. I get that some people have a problem with how I came to this country. I was a kid. I didn't have a choice. I get that. But what I don't get and what I will never accept is the kind of rhetoric that this president has um, not just allowed, but clearly encourage. Your, your community is so diverse in the number of immigrant groups and, and the views of these groups. And, and you often talk about the importance of representing your community. How, can, how do you do that when there's so many different voices in the community with so many different viewpoints and different needs? I think you find a common ground. I, at the very essence, we are a low-wage working community. We have some members of our community who happen to be famous. We have some actors in, in our more affluent part of, of the district. But I think for, for all that that entails, 
everyone wants the same basic things. We want an MTA that works. We want education that actually functions for our children in fully funded schools. We want uh, our immigrants to be protected and to have the rights that they are entitled to under the Constitution and not to have ICE show up at their doors trying to tear them apart from their family. We want jobs that actually pay a living wage and that actually pay. Because in our district, one of the things that happens is workers don't get paid. And so when you can find that commonality between uh, the stuff or the uh, ideals of folks in the more affluent part of the district versus the Colombian community versus the Bangladeshi community, they all want the same thing at the end of the day. So what's an example you think where the community really has gotten uh, together uh, around a particular idea and another uh, issue that has been difficult for the community to agree on? So I think one of the, the the very clear ones has been protecting immigrants. Um, when the when the end of DACA was announced, or what was threatened, because we're still fighting through that. When we had the crisis at the border that we're still going through, when we, we've had the threat of deportations and of, of mass um, removals and raids, our community has come together, regardless of language, regardless of religion, regardless, regardless of socioeconomic status, and has done several things. Teachings, protests, um, eyes watch, and community education. And as far and, and the electeds have made sure that our community feels like we're listening, like we're protecting them. Because at a local level, we can't really control what the feds are going to do, but we can be on alert and we can be on a different kind of attack. The kind of attack that if somebody from our neighborhood gets picked up by ICE, we can immediately get them a lawyer, we can help the family, etc. We came together right away. An issue that's a little bit more... I don't know if the word is controversial, but less we have less of an ability to kind of find a common ground um, is the overdevelopment of our district. There are members of our community, like me, who do not want, say, a target down the block from us because that's going to displace, this is actually the fight that happened last year within the district. It's going to displace our small businesses. Our street vendors are going to be harassed even more and it's going to create a tremendous traffic jam because that particular target is going to be up the block uh, and around the corner from Elmhurst Hospital, the only trauma one center in, in, in the vicinity. So for... Many members in the community, this is not something we were even willing to talk about and we don't want it to happen. For other members of the community who want to make sure that their properties have a better financial value, that um, that they have a target close to them, people like to shop, and um, who are basically interested in turning Jackson Heights into a more gentrified neighborhood because it's it's better for their pocket and, and, and they might think that it's a more... It's a prettier neighborhood. I don't think so, but they might think that because these are some of the conversations that have happened. They want that to happen. And so there was a conflict between members of the community about what to do. And uh, one of the things that I had to do in that particular instance was go with my principles and understand that part of the community was not going to be happy with me and part of it would be. But I... I've often thought that there are times when you're a public servant where your community has to lead you, and there are times when you have to lead your community. How do you make the decision of so which issue it is? When do you have to be led and when do you have to lead? 
This might not make sense, but I go with my gut. I like to consult my female instinct. There are times when I let my gut tell me this is the right thing for our community. This is the more progressive issue to follow. And 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 I often listen to both sides. Um, right now, there's a fight right outside of our district with a gigantic uh, liquor retailer that um, was going to open up shop and could affect the small businesses in my district. And so you had I had members of, of, of the private sector that represent this liquor distributor come in and I met with my small businesses. And I listened to both sides and I went with what my gut told me. And my gut told me, you stand with the small businesses and you turn away the other guys. Mario Cuomo, a former governor of New York, in fact, the father of the current governor of New York. Um, famous, who I worked for. Who you worked for, right. Fa- famously said, is often quoted, that you campaign in poetry and you govern in prose. And I wonder if you certainly campaigned in poetry as you campaigned for uh, the state assembly here, but are you finding that you're governing in prose or are you able to try to govern in poetry as well? I think there have been issues where I have been able to govern in poetry where the ideals of the kind of world we could have have come to actual fruition. We didn't think that could happen, you know, for a very long time. The state assembly is where good ideas went to die because we had a very progressive body that could put out a hundred pieces of legislation in one day. And if our colleagues in the Senate weren't going to be as progressive, then we couldn't do anything. I think that what we have now is the kind of Senate that actually is going to work hand in hand with the assembly to allow us at certain times to govern in, in poetry. Uh, driver's licenses for all in, in, in the DREAM Act, I think, were, were two clear instances that we fought for it for so long and waited that it went from a pro, from prose to this is just poetry because it just sounds so pretty, but it's never going to happen until it did until we were able to fight for it and until it actually happened. And what you're referring to here is that for the first time in a long time, the New York State Senate, the upper house, is actually democratically controlled. Yes. And that's allowed now some passage of legislation that's been pushed by the Democratic Party. For, yes, it's, it's, in, in it's, it's helped a lot of legislation that's, that's yeah. uh, more democratic-leaning, if you will. And the DREAM Act you refer to is is not the, the federal DREAM Act, which would have given status to DREAMers, to DACA-type people, but rather it, it would provide state uh, financial assistance and scholarships to undocumented students in higher education, right? Yes, yeah. that's um, the Jose Peralta DREAM Act is something that we had been hoping for for almost a decade. Um, it was fought for for a very long time. I mean, there were students that went on like hunger strikes, rallies, got arrested. There were a number of more poetic things that were done to get that to happen until it finally got enough votes. Um, and I think people understood that if some of these more poetic pieces of legislation didn't happen this year, next year with being an election year, it would be nearly impossible to pass them. During your campaign and in the many stories that have been written about you, it's always pointed out that you were a dreamer, that you had come with papers, but that your visa had expired and you spent a number of years without status before you attained status, a green card through marriage uh, and, and became a U.S. citizen. Do you like the uh, the stories written about you as a dreamer or do you wish they were stories about you as a member of the New York Assembly? Not that those are mutually exclusive, but, but how much of that... Of, of, of the identification of you as a dreamer is important to you politically or in your personal identity? For a very long time, I hid that identity and that part of me for a very long time. It wasn't 
Um, there's actually a book that was written recently, uh, C. Jane Wynn, that talks about the day that I decided to start telling my story. It was the, the morning after the Trump uh, election. And it, and it started because I felt like I could no longer stay quiet when I knew what was about to happen. I could see it a mile away. I could see what was about to happen to this country. And I felt like a hypocrite. I felt like I was extremely privileged. I am At this point, I'm a lawyer. I'm a U.S. citizen. I've been working for the city council, the governor. I worked for everyone and their mother. And no one knew how hard my life had been up to that point. Yet there were hundreds of thousands of young dreamers all around the country screaming to the world and who would ever listen about how hard it is to live that way. And no one, really, very few people talked about what it means to be one of the lucky ones and be on the other side. And what happens to a young person's life when you give them this level of a chance. And the fact that I got lucky. I wasn't given the chance. I got lucky. And so why can't we give people a chance so that they don't have to depend on just luck to survive in this country? And so when I decided to run, one of the things that happens in campaigning is you sit with people who know more about this than you and you tell them your life story because they have to vet you and they have to understand why you want to run. And when I started telling that part, realizing that 60% of the people in my district are born in another country, we all realized that I had to start publicly talking about that and, 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 and really putting it out there. And it wasn't so much for what you think of as political gain in the House of Cards context. It was much more so that people in the community would understand that I wasn't just another politician, that I was a girl from the hood who lived what they lived, that got lucky, but now wanted to fight for them. And so... When that decision was made, I will tell you, the first few months, I hated calling myself that because it was a reminder of the pain. Because every time that I had to talk about fearing ICE, fear, well, at that time it was INS. INS was what, what used to be the agency until they did away with it and, and they cut it up into two agencies, one of them being ICE. Immigration Naturalization Services, I think yeah, it was Full called. disclosure, I was once the general counsel of INS. Oh, look at that. <laughs> um, and so you probably agree with me that, that, that the problem isn't so much the agency, but the actual law, because this, is, this whole movement of, and, of, of abolishing ICE isn't going to end what's happening. So. Right, or it, it's the way the law is enforced. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's often been my argument. But going back to the story. Yeah. So um, what I, I, I often struggled with that story because every time I had to tell it, I had to relive how difficult it was not knowing if my mom was going to come home, emergency planning with my siblings, and, and just really reliving every single hard part of that process. And it wasn't until... It wasn't until I had this young man who's a John Jay student, come work in my campaign. Tell me, pull me to the side and tell me that the reason he came to help me, that the reason he came to help me was because he was living through what I lived through. And that when he heard me talk about it, it gave him hope that one day he wouldn't have to hide, that one day he'd get lucky. And so that started to give me a level of comfort in, in owning and understanding my own pain. And, and in full disclosure, I go to therapy once a week. And so I talk about things like that. I talk about a bunch of other things. But there is a lot of trauma that 
goes unspoken with having had to live as an undocumented person that I am sure it's not just uh, um, me. I'm sure there's thousands of people in this country who've had to live with that trauma. So the more I talk about it publicly, the more I help others understand their own hardships, fight alongside me, and speak up if they want to. Seems like we're living through uh, two or three years of extreme trauma for many immigrants in this country. Um, and I wonder, as, as you have talked about the importance of legalizing the status of people uh, in the country, about giving them a full uh, a path to citizenship, that has to be decided at the federal level. What can you do as a member of the New York State Assembly that pushes that agenda, or do you need to be elsewhere to make that happen? Um, no, I think that, um, I mean, one of the things I'm doing is endorsing the president that I think will be best suited for the for that job, and we'll make sure that that happens. Um, Have you made an endorsement? I did, uh, Elizabeth Warren. Um, I'm going to be working with her team to to kind of push that forward. Um, I, I, I want to also continue to work with my colleagues at the federal level. I share a district with uh, Congresswoman uh, Ocasio-Cortez um, where I think she's on the same page that I am in making sure that policies at the federal level are actually pushing forward um, the idea that we need a path to full citizenship. I think what I can do at the local level is help immigrants be prepared for when that happens. Be, what is it they say? Uh, prepare for the worst and hope for the best. And so make sure that they know their rights, that they have consulted with a lawyer. They are going through that entire uh, path so that if, not if, knock on wood, when we get a path to citizenship, they're ready for that. And I'm going to be advocating and I'm going to be fighting and and look, you know, a, a little uh, civil disobedience here and there has helped the cause. Uh, so we can do that too. What led you to uh, endorse Elizabeth Warren? How how do you see her as different than uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, Joe Biden, Mayor Pete, Kamala Harris? Poetry and prose. I think you actually helped me answer that question when you brought it up earlier. I've worked in government for about 10 years, I understand how ridiculously difficult it is to implement plans and how important it is to have a plan and how important it is to understand that it's difficult to have those plans and to speak to the community with truth and to understand the inner workings of government and not just, and not just put your finger in the air to see which way the wind is blowing, which has happened to some of the folks on the well, how many candidates is it? Twenty at this point, on the, on this dozen plus folks. Some of them want to now be seen as progressives when they spent an entire career putting black and brown kids in jail. Others want us to attribute to them the work of someone they worked for. I'm naming any names. And others have poetry, and that's okay. But I want someone that has poetry and has prose and understands when one needs to lead over the other. In the 1960s, the civil rights movement obviously uh, was very important in the passage of legislation. That was federal legislation and often imposed against states that didn't want to move forward on the civil rights agenda. We seem to be in a reverse situation now where we have a federal government 
that is taking tough, uh, adopting very tough policies against immigrant uh, populations, against asylum seekers on the southwest border, across the board in this country. And I'm wondering whether you see New York State as almost a, sort of the republic of New York. Can it, can it isolate itself, immunize itself, or in some way provide protection to its citizens against what, what some people might view as quite uh, difficult policies being imposed by the national government? I'd like to think we go a little bit beyond that into being a leader um, in, in, in protecting immigrants and protecting and welcoming folks. Um, our electeds don't always act um, in the way that they should. They promise a lot of things to immigrants and come delivery time. They find a million excuses to not get things done. But the good thing about states like New York, is that we have um, several branches or the bodies of government who, and I'm referring to the Assembly and the Senate, who, when it comes to protecting immigrants, I think we're on the same page. I think we all want to make sure that we have the kind of state that is leading the way. Uh, I often like to say I'd like to be California when we grow up, when New York gets its act together. Um, and I think they have done a fantastic job leading the way uh, on items like driver's licenses, the DREAM Act. Uh, they have a uh, statewide uh, legal services representation program for anybody that's in removal proceedings. And so if you're in California, you will get an attorney. If you're in New York, possibly. And so I'd, I'd like to be California when we grow up. The, uh, one of the policies of the Trump administration is the new public charge rule, which makes it much tougher for people who may ultimately need um, access to the, to the social safety net to be able to get a green card or ultimately uh, citizenship. Are you, is that an issue in your district? Are you seeing that as a problem for people in the, in the community? I'm seeing the fear as a problem because in conversations with folks like from, say, the Legal Aid Society, my understanding is that none of the benefits that people generally apply for are the kind of benefits that would exclude you. And that's what people don't understand. And that's what the administration is banking on. They are banking on the lack of knowledge. That is what this administration is counting on the lack of knowledge and the chaos that every time there's a tweet, every time this man opens his mouth, every time there's a new policy, people don't understand it and people go crazy trying to make sure that they can stay in this country. Another part of the Republican message here is to uh, end what they call chain migration. And in some ways, your story is an example of what they would call chain migration. You came, you gained legal status, you were able then to bring your, your, give your mother legal status, and I think uh, uh, there are other family members that you would like to ultimately be able to bring in. How do you answer the Republican charge here that chain migration is a problem for the United States? Well, I'd like to see it as family reunification. The reunification of families who came to this country looking for a better life and who, who left families behind, who left families in countries wearing the United States medals in their economy, in their foreign policy, in their government. And so this uh, term of chain migration is the kind of term that you see Fox News uses, Breitbart uses, the Republicans use, because it has a ring to it. 
because it sounds like something their constituents want to hear. And it's going to get them more votes and it's going to get them more interest. I choose to not see it that way. I choose to see it as the reunification of families who have been forced to be separated for years, sometimes decades, because of the economic status in their country created by the United States. You know, you've talked about uh, Fox and and Breitbart, and we seem to be in a a very polarized moment, not on immigration only, but on climate and taxes, a whole range of issues. Do you see a way to bring folks together on, uh, at least on the, the topic of immigration. Is there a way forward that could could attain a consensus view in this country, do you think? Consensus, no. I think this is one of those times where there is a time for the community to lead the elected, and there is a time when the elected needs to lead the community. I think we need a drastic change in who's leading our country and who's leading uh, different segments of parties, And this goes for the Democrats, too. This isn't just for the Republicans. If we have folks in leadership positions who are not looking after the best interests of those we love, be it our LGBTQI community, be it our working class, be it immigrants, be it anyone, if they're not leading us, we take them out of their seat and we put somebody else. So do you support some of the efforts of uh, uh, Ocasio-Cortez to to put up uh, progressive candidates against the more mainstream Democratic candidates in the congressional races? One, I don't know if that's her doing it or not. That's what the news is saying. Would I, uh, I, I never like to look at it that way. And I think she would agree with me because I've been accused of putting up people to run as well. I like to think that these are people who are running and that she's decided to support. Because I don't think that someone who ran against a machinery would behave like machinery herself. Because that's the, that's what a machinery does. You put up people to run. I like to think that she's encouraging others to run, and then we're going to let the people decide. Because that's who should have decided. It shouldn't be corporations. It shouldn't be a democratic machine or a Republican machine. It should be the vote of the everyday person that decides what happens in our community, what happens in our district. These are such tough times in many ways around this country. And I'm wondering if there's a a, a recent story um, that you've experienced that's happened to you that that keeps you going, that, that inspires you, that gives you faith that better times might be ahead. Oh, let's see. I have to be honest. It's been really tough lately. It's been really tough when when you hear that there are people in a district of immigrants threatening other immigrants with deportation because they want them removed from their apartment. Uh, When you see landlords using someone's immigration status to put the fear of God in them. It's really tough when, you know, right before I came here, I was at a... I was at a press conference supporting two members of our LGBTQI community in in our neighborhood who were beat up at a restaurant. And it seems, you know, they're still under investigation, but it seems like the restaurant didn't do much. They eventually called the cops, but they didn't do much. It's really tough during those times. Um, But I think it's especially important during those times to think about what could be, to think about the poetry to think about the kind of community we envision, the kind of community we want to live, because if you envision it, it could happen. Um, 
and and so that's how I get through my dark days. Is there? Uh, let, let me let me turn the question around in the other way. Then, or is there something that's that's happened uh, that you see that that truth coming forward? That if you think it, it can be, it can actually happen, and it's uh, then inspired you to keep going. The fight for driver's licenses. I I will be honest. I didn't think it was going to happen. I stood on that floor. We voted and approved it in the assembly. I knew that that was going to be a breeze. That we would get it done. We had enough votes. But the day that I stood with my colleagues in the Senate waiting for that vote, I did not think it would happen. I ugly cried once they voted yes, and the governor signed it right away. Because we had opposition from the Republicans. We had more conservative Democrats. And on the umpteenth hour, we even had the governor trying to kill it. And here comes St. Tish James to save the day and say, this is constitutional and I will fight for it. And when it passed, it gave me the hope that I didn't go through all I went through to be mediocre. And I say that because the day that I decided to run for office, I asked my mom if I should do it. And she said to me, we didn't go through all we went through for you to decide to be mediocre. This episode was produced with the assistance of Erin Johnson. And she and I sat down for a chat in the Dodge 112 studios in Brooklyn, New York. Erin, uh, a couple of things struck me about the interview with Catalina Cruz. Uh, first, I was really interested in how her identity as a dreamer uh, came out only when she started her campaign uh, for the assembly. And now she sort of lives in this world both as a representative of dreamers, uh, but also as a practical politician in the New York State Assembly. What would you make of that? That portion of her interview really made me reflect on the role of identity politics uh, in the U.S. currently and how that's um, kind of become a, a loaded term and something that people look down upon is bringing your personal identity into your political role. Uh, but the interview with Assemblywoman Cruz really pointed out how sharing that personal identity can be an asset and can be hugely important in accurately representing your your constituency. You know, the other thing that struck me in the interview was the, and she picked up on the the Mario Cuomo quote about campaigning and poetry and 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 then governing in in prose. That she really has both those within her. She's got a lot of what she says poetry of, of principled stances and and inspirational work about what kind of country this can be. But given her her role in, in many government positions and now in the assembly, she understands sort of the hard work of legislation and the pragmatism uh, of that. What I found really interesting was the portion where uh, she was asked to, to share a story that kept her going recently. And even though we had heard her recount several stories, which I personally found very moving earlier in the interview, um, she kept bringing back what kept her going to the more pragmatic side of things, to what they had already accomplished, to what she was going to accomplish in the future. Uh, and that that really spoke to me about, yeah, her personality of experiencing and being able to share all these poetic, inspirational moments, but uh, really her drivers being the fundamental pragmatic getting stuff done getting stuff done attitude exactly yeah, and I, I was uh, interested in her um, endorsement of Elizabeth Warren because Elizabeth Warren does seem to model uh, this uh, kind of politician who at the one hand is quite uh, inspirational about a strong set of uh, broad policy goals but on the other hand has worked 
uh, on the nitty-gritty of legislation and administration, both before and now in office as a senator. Yes, uh, agreed. And in Assemblywoman Cruz's focus on immigration issues, which are such a hot button and at times very controversial issue in, in American politics, it makes perfect sense to me that she would see the clear need for that that pragmatic attitude and to have a fully formed plan for issues like this and, um, yeah, why she would value that in a presidential candidate. As as she mentioned, her uh, district in Queens, which is a New York State Assembly district, uh, overlaps with the congressional district of Congresswoman uh, Ocasio-Cortez. And it's interesting the way that immigration policy decided at the national level has a dramatic impact on the city level and the kinds of things that the city can do and the state can do uh, to help out undocumented immigrants, even at a time of very unfriendly actions coming at the national level. Absolutely. And I, I think for the Assemblywoman to be able to number one, recount everything that she's already helped accomplish and help move forward at the New York state level. And number two, be able to say, but I still want to do better. I still want to be California when we grow up and um, still have that aspiration that we need to keep doing better and better, I think really speaks to that, that power that is embodied on the state level. You've been listening to Tempest Tossed, a production of the Zolberg Institute on Migration and Mobility at the New School. Our engineer is Sahil Ansari at Dodge 112, and theme music composed by Eli Nalenikov. We would welcome your comments and suggestions for future episodes, and you can reach us by emailing us at tossedtempest at gmail.com. That's tossedtempest.com all one word at gmail.com.